You can't kill creativity. You can, but the person has to die. So creativity is our essence, it's the energy that runs through us, and everyone has access to abundant creativity. The simplest question to ask yourself is when do your best ideas come to you? I've asked this question in retreats and workshops all over the world, and the kind of answers I get are... From the city of Beaky Blinders, Birmingham, England, I would like to introduce you to Paddy Dandar. As the world becomes more automated and the robots take over, it's imperative that we build the right human skills for the future. So pull up a chair, grab a smoser or two, and make yourself very uncomfortable. In this episode, I'm joined by Alexander Inchbold. He is a global authority on creativity, the author of two books, and the founder of the Masterpiece Agency and a climate artist. He spent the last 10 years guiding changemakers to discover their purpose and bring it to life. Everything he does is based on his mystical experiences he had painting mountains around the world. So Alexander, I know you live in a beautiful place near some mountains. Could you share where that is and what you're seeing through your window right now? Yeah, sure. So if I look this way, I see the French Alps and the snow on the French Alps. And if I look a little bit like that, I see Lake Geneva. And if I look that way, I look all the way down Lake Geneva and the sun is setting over the Jura Mountains in the distance. And then if I look this way, we've got UNESCO heritage vineyards in a series of villages. And so this is Lake Geneva I'm in front of. I'm in Switzerland right here. About an hour's drive that way, if you ski, is a uh, ski resort called Verbier. About an hour that way is Bern and two hours Zurich. And then right down the end of the lake is Geneva. So I'm above a little city called Montreux where they have a jazz festival every July. My memories of Switzerland, apart from obviously the beautiful scenery and the mountains and everything else, was when I went there with my wife many years ago before the kids came along, I went to McDonald's and it was so expensive. I think I paid about 10 pound, yeah, about 10 pound for a, a meal and I was just blown away. I was like, oh my God, I had no idea. Are things quite expensive over there? Yeah, don't come back then, Paddy. When I left the UK, 20 years ago, the exchange rate was 2.3 Swiss francs to the pound. It is now 1.08. Wow. Less than halved in value. And if we go back to the first time I came to Switzerland when I was about 12, I skied in a ski resort. Uh, first time I ever skied, just literally there. It's actually one of the closest resorts to where I live now. And I've been up there painting a few times, but I painted this painting just above that resort. And I, I think it was three to the pound. And the, there was a massive shift around 2007, 2008, when we had the financial crisis. And then the pound has just weakened against the Swiss franc over the last few years. Do come back because it's beautiful, but don't come back if you don't like expensive things, because this now is one of the most expensive countries, if not the most expensive country in the world. Well, as an Indian person, we're not renowned for spending lots of money. So I might have a few other <laughs> places before I think about coming back or make some more money. 
then I'll decide. And Alexander, you are Mr. Creativity. I am fascinated by what you do for a living. And I'd love to know, like, when did you discover your talent for creativity? Or when did you feel that this was uh, an area in your life that you wanted to pursue? Well, it depends how far we want to go back. I, I almost feel like telling you my life story. I guess that I really knew that I was called to focus on creativity about 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago. And I went on a retreat in South Africa and it just changed everything in my life. And I'd always known that creativity was at the heart of me. And so it was really just waking up a part of me that was always there. But if you go back, you go back far enough. I remember my first painting at Mrs. Woodyatt's and Mrs. Boot Woodyatt was where I went to kindergarten playgroup. And I don't know, I was three, something like that. And one day she opens up the kitchen and she's put plastic sheeting or newspapers down and she's pieces of paper and she's got paints. And I remember this sensation of putting my hand in the paint. And there was something special, and there is still something special about that feeling when you're actually creating something, the act of creation, that with your very hands, you can create something that a second before wasn't there. And I don't think I was consciously aware of it at the time, but over time, I've begun to realize that was the first moment that I remember that was really special. And I guess everything in between those two moments was moments of creation intertwined with moments of being told that wasn't really how you were going to make a lot of money. And I remember at age of 16, my dad coming to me just after I painted the best painting I'd ever painted. It was inspired by a Claude Monet painting called Le Pont de Argentoy, which is now in the Quai d'Orsay in Paris. And I'd seen the exhibition in London at the National Gallery and it was 91 and I came back and I painted this painting and it took me a few months to paint it and it, I loved it, absolutely loved it. And immediately after I finished it, my parents came up and they had one of these parents' evenings and my dad and my mum spoke to my art teacher and my dad came into the room where the painting was and he said, look, I've spoken to your art teacher, his name was Mark and I've spoken to your mum and we've come to the conclusion you're not good enough to make enough money as a professional artist. So <laughs> that was a moment when I, I, was, I was devastated. My dream was to go to St. Martin's in the field in London and study fine art. And here was my dad saying, you're not good enough to do it. And I, I tumbled into depression. I went and studied business studies at Edinburgh University, loved Edinburgh, but didn't really love what I was doing. I was doing it because I felt that's what I ought to do. And then I went into business. And in the meantime, I literally stopped eating properly, drank in order to calm my body down enough to be able to eat. So we'd go out and get drunk and then eat a kebab at three o'clock in the morning, which is not really a very healthy thing to do. And then at a certain point, I drank too much and ended up in hospital. I actually ended up in hospital twice through drinking too much. Had my stomach pumped once and the second time damaged my stomach lining to the extent that the doctor said to me, you have to stop drinking now. And so here's a guy who always wanted to be an artist and he can't even be in the presence of other people. I, I couldn't go on dates for five years and then go to university. So I go and get my first job and I, it was a training program, marketing training program. One of the top 
marketing training programs in the country. At least it was in my day. And at the end of it, the head of HR said, I, let's talk. And I thought she was you know, offering me the next step in my journey. And she said, look, there's no job for you. I thought, what do you mean there's no job? She said, well, the problem is that if I look at your appraisal, you're okay in some areas, but there's one area you're not good enough in. I said, what's that? She said, creativity. Here's a boy of 16, teenager 16, who wants to be an artist and a, a man of 26, a young man of 26, not even creative enough to be in an uncreative company. So when you ask the question about when did I know? Well, there were moments when I didn't know. Like I, like I went to the bottom of the ocean in terms of creativity and thinking I wasn't creative and was reminded of Sir Ken Robinson's TED talk, the most popular TED talk. Where is it? 60, 70 million views now, in which he claims that schools kill creativity. We ask the question, do schools kill creativity? And I believe that to be true for a number of years. But actually, when I got down to it, I realized that's not actually possible. You can't kill creativity. Or you can, but the person has to die. And so creativity is our essence. It's the energy that runs through us. And everyone has access to abundant creativity. So when I hear people say, oh, I'm not an artist, I can't draw, that to me is not creativity. Creativity is an abundant resource that everyone has access to. You can suppress it. You can try to kill it. But the only way actually to kill the creativity is to end your life, which is a pretty serious thing. <laughs> and why is creativity so important in today's world, do you think? Because I often look at these skills reports that come out, and I know LinkedIn did one of these a few years ago, and they said, here's the top 20 skills or 10 skills uh, for the future. And creativity was, I think, number four or five on that list. And so it feels like it's a really important skill. Well, what's your thoughts on that? Why should we care about creativity? Well, if you look at where we are right now and the challenges that we face, whether you talk about climate change or the situation in Ukraine or the situation in the Middle East, it doesn't take a genius to work out that what we're doing isn't working. There's something not quite working. And it was Albert Einstein who said doing the same thing again and expecting different results is uh, his definition of madness. And you have to change the way you look at something. And creativity is an abundant resource that when we focus it on addressing the, the thing that we're called to do, can change everything, can change our perspective. So I go and paint mountains, right? This is a painting of Mont Blanc and this is a painting of Les Dons de Midi. And for those of you who are watching the video, and I liken it often to, to going up a mountain because the higher up the mountain you go, the more you see and the different perspective you have. And the more you unlock your creativity, the more you see a different perspective. You see the world entirely differently. From the bottom of the mountain, it's sometimes hard to see the top and it's often hard to see the pathway up. But when you're standing on the summit of the mountain, it's much easier to track and to work out the right pathway, the simplest, most elegant way up the mountain. 
And too many of us, I, I think, at the moment are stuck in the woods or maybe in a crevasse somewhere on a glacier partway up the mountain, and we can't see our summit. And we can't even see the pathway to the summit. All we can see is the next step. And when you elevate somebody to actually stand on the summit, you see an entirely different world in front of you. And in that world, it's obvious what you're called to do. And that, to me, is the power of creativity, is that actually we, we see an entirely different perspective on the world. And we see what needs to change and what, what part we can play in that. And you mentioned you paint mountains. And on the screen, we can yeah. see some beautiful pictures that you've painted. How does that then help the average professional? So if someone out there is thinking, hey, this sounds interesting and cool, but I'm trying to make the connection between what you've done to how that's going to help me in my work. Because I know you have a, a great program. Could you share a little bit about the thought process behind that and how that would help professionals? So if you look at your job, where are you facing resistance? Where are you facing challenges? What symptoms are you seeing in your job where things are not flowing? For instance, do you find that you're resisting your boss or a colleague or the values of the company or the vision of the company? Or is it that you're in resistance to a competitor? Or is there something going on at home? Let's take it out of the work environment. Let's put it home. Are you finding that there's tension with your partner or tension in not having a partner or tension with the children or tension with your parents or your parents-in-law? Or is it bigger than that, that you're feeling a tension on the planet right now in terms of climate change or politics or, or war? Like where are you seeing tension? And you can look at this in a work environment. You can look at it in a personal environment. You can look at it at a community environment. You can look at it at a national environment. You can look at a global environment. It really doesn't matter. It's a fractal, and in a fractal, it's just an ever-repeating pattern. And whatever symptom you're seeing is a resistance. The psychologist Carl Jung, he lived up in Zurich, he did a lot of his work in Zurich, he famously said, the father of modern psychology, he said, whatever you resist persists and grows. And Eckhart Tolle, who is one of a number of teachers on the planet who I think he's pretty extraordinary. He did a lot of work with Oprah and wrote a, a book called, was it New World? Something like that. And somewhere on this bookcase over here. And he said, whatever you resist in another is also in you, which is actually a scarier statement. So in a sense, it's a mirror and we don't like looking in a mirror. So whenever we see resistance outside of us, Actually, there's something inside of us that's creating that resistance. So how does creativity help us? Well, actually, most of the time when we see resistance, we try to suppress it or avoid it. But if you just embrace it, and what I learned painting in the mountains is how true that statement from Carl Jung is, that when we stop resisting whatever is outside of us, and we actually embrace it and we accept it rather than trying to avoid it, something miraculous happens in that moment. And it's almost like the whole universe actually starts to conspire to work with us, which is a paraphrasing of a quote from the alchemist, 
Howard Crayer. When we truly follow our dreams, the whole universe conspires to help us. And so whenever we stop resisting something outside of us, and we understand what is causing that resistance inside of us, and we accept that and we embrace that just as is, something shifts. Now, it doesn't mean that you just lay back and just go and allow, it's not just surrendering to everything. It's not what I'm saying. It's actually a very active process. So I've experienced this again and again in the mountains. It took me a bit of a while to work out what was really going on, but it's how creativity works. It's the design of the entire system. I see that poster behind you. There seems to be half of a framework there that I can just about see in my mm. shot. Is that related to the approach that you take when you're taking people through this journey? And could you expand upon what you've got there? So it's actually called the, the Masterpiece Pathway. And it emerged out of some work that I was doing uh, on one of our retreats a couple of years ago. And it's a map, actually. It, and it's a fractal map. So you can read it on multiple different levels. And the levels you could read it on, believe it or not, the entire history of planet, the history of humankind, the history of business, the evolution of business, the story of an individual life, and the story of an individual masterpiece. So I'm not going to go into all of it because there's just too much. It's just layers and layers and layers and layers. And the more I explored it, the more it taught me. But what I can say is that if you start here, 200,000 years ago, humankind was born in the Great Rift Valley in Africa, somewhere around about Kenya or Tanzania, according to what archaeologists will tell us. And actually, we've run retreats there and we worked with some archaeologists. We bumped into some archaeologists. They were working just down the road and we had a conversation. They were digging down this trench and that was amazing. They literally handed us flints, which had been arrowheads 70,000 years ago. So 70,000 years ago, your and my ancestors did not have a conscious mind. We weren't conscious. What that means is that we were no more aware than a tree is that it's a tree. A leopard is not aware that it is separate from the Serengeti. It has no conscious awareness. What happened about 40,000 years ago, so this is where we're in the matriarchal system, right? Connected to all of it, no separation. Then about 40,000 years ago, the prefrontal cortex, it's a mutation, it starts to emerge, and it gives us awareness, a sense of separation, and also the larynx, and that gives us a sense of ability to communicate more effectively. And these two combined start us on this journey of separation. Right? So this is the pathway of separation. Going from the feminine to, on this side, the kind of pinnacle of the masculine, if you like. And... You know, it doesn't take a genius to look around and see that we're actually living in a relatively masculine, dominated world. I don't think there's uh, many women in history who've started wars. You, you can think of them, right? Cleopatra, Bodicea, Margaret Thatcher, maybe Joan of Arc. <laughs> I mean, you think how many wars there are in the world, right? So we got on this journey of separation, and there are other points in here. For instance, you know, 10,000 years ago, we start to settle down in villages probably in the Fertile Crescent in Jordan. And we start to grow crops. And those crops give us the ability to store things. And the ability to store things is the first time we see any form of hoarding. So before that, everything is in a natural state of flow. So for 95% of 
of the history of humankind, we have just been in a state of flow, basically part of it. But here we start to put ourselves very subtly above Mother Nature. And then 5,000 years ago, we create the first civilization, Sumer, which was a little bit to the east in one day Iran and Iraq. And there what we created was we created the first money system, we created the first power structures, ziggurats, slavery, we created the first marriage, which was not about love, it's about man, actually the masculine controlling the feminine and being able to guarantee that that he was he knew that was his child. And we also produced the first forms of time, so sand clocks and water clocks. And this to me is a pivotal moment in history. And then every subsequent civilization has basically moved us further this way, except now we appear to be going back. So if you think the pinnacle here is the industrial world, that we've gone from being part of everything to being a cog in a machine, we're actually moving back on this system now on the pathway of integration. And that pathway, we can see the evolution of big business, which first of all was very separated into silos, but then we started to add in HR departments and and internal communication and marketing, the more softer feminine aspect as we move back this way. And then we started to see with Silicon Valley really unlocking the creativity. So the likes of Google with their 20% time saying 20% of your time, one day a week, you work on any project you like. And so really unlocking that creativity. And we know that 50% of Google's innovation, Gmail and calendar and maps, that all came out of innovations from the engineers in Silicon Valley. And you can see the similar things happening in Amazon and, and Apple and really trying to, to, to flip this model upside down. And when I got involved with the internet in 97, I really saw this possibility that the internet would literally flip business upside down. And to some extent it did, but actually what it really did is accelerated the extractive system. So what we start to see is that more money is on the planet than ever, but it's also in fewer and fewer hands. So something like 40% of the world's wealth is, is held by 10 people. And eight of those 10 formed their company in Silicon Valley. And the other two, I believe, are Indian. So, so we've got 10 people owning 40% of the world's wealth. And that, to me, is an equation that I feel uncomfortable with. And it's trapped behind a dam, right? And some of us have leapt over the side, over the dam, or we're moving back around this way. And what we're seeing is resistance as we move this way. And th this model, so that, that's the journey. We're seeing resistance here. We're seeing resistance here. We're seeing his money drying up as we move this way. So some of us are moving to a more fractal model, a more natural model of the way that things work. So we're creating organizations a bit more like Patagonia, which is really based on unlocking the potential of the individual purpose, unlocking the creativity, but in a more natural way. So here, it's pinned around one individual. So if Elon decides I'm going this way, or if Jeff Bezos decides I'm going this way, the company goes one of those ways. And it's not particularly natural. Whereas when you actually create an organization a bit more like Patagonia, as Eve Shu and I did, it is predicated on the idea that everyone can contribute. And a lot of the work we do is about moving organizations this way, helping individuals to move this way. But in order to do that, the real insight that we learn is you actually have to track back along the system and you have to uncover all of the things that stop this natural flow. So if you look at a lifetime, you know, we're actually born in a state, delta brainwaves, where we're connected to all of it. And through our life, we start to move this way into theta at the age of two, alpha at the age of seven, beta at the age of 12, up 
brain is predominantly producing those brain waves. And we reach this point as an adult where our brain is fully developed. And then we think this is it. But at a certain point in our lives, we realize this isn't it. And so we continue on this pathway, trying to find that sense of home that we had when we were young, but then we face resistance. What we have to do is we have to back all the way up and uncover the things back here in our childhood and in our teenage years that stop us from actually truly unlocking our creative potential as artists and unlocking our capacity. So that's two dimensions. The third dimension is actually simpler. When I paint, and I go back to that story of putting my hands in the paint and putting them on a piece of paper, you're going from a sense of connection and you are then placing something on a piece of paper and then you're going back and resourcing yourself every single second. And this is what we call a state of flow. But what most of us don't realize is that our natural state is that state. We were born in a state of flow and our natural state is a state of flow and it is only the mind and the things that we experienced in our life that stop us from being in this natural state of flow. So my observation based on my research is there's only one thing in the entire universe that can stop the natural flow of creativity, love, prosperity, vitality, and that's the human mind. But it's also the thing, the flip side of it, it's also the thing which can help us to shift. So if we focus it in the right way, if we use the inner to focus the outer and use the mind for what it's there for, then actually we can change things. As Albert Einstein said, our essence, our intuition is a sacred gift and our intellect is a faithful servant. So if we use the servant for what it's there for, which is to focus us on the summit, rather than be pulled down into the weeds and the crevasses, then actually we go back into our natural state of flow. If someone out there is looking to build that creative muscle and they want to tap into yeah. that creative side of the mind, are there any tips and tricks that you can suggest that they could try by themselves? Yeah, sure. The simplest question to ask yourself is when do your best ideas come to you? When do your best ideas come to you? And just spend a moment now reflecting on that question. When do your best ideas come to you? And I've asked this question in retreats and workshops all over the world, online, offline, in person, online. And the kind of answers I get are when I'm cooking, when I'm cleaning, when I'm reading, when I'm in the shower, when I'm on the toilet, when I'm on a play, when I'm on a train, when I'm running, when I'm in nature, when I'm talking to other people, just before I go to bed, just after I wake up. And then I ask the second question, what links all those moments? Most people say, well, when I'm at peace, which is true. But how does that work when you're with a friend? Because you're actively communicating. And the conclusion I came to um, actually came from a guy called Vincent van Gogh. And he said, I paint with my heart and my soul in the process I lost my mind. And of course, if you'd know anything about Vincent, you're like, yeah, well, he went crazy because he lost his mind. But actually, that misses the fundamental point that he was pointing to, which is our best ideas come when we get out of processing things, when we shift from beta brainwaves, which is over here in my model, state of doing, 
back into a state of being. So we shift back into alpha, shift from beta, alpha, theta, and back into delta. And delta, pretty difficult to get into delta when you're running because that's what you get into when you're in deep sleep. You get into it in, when, in meditation, but you'd have to go really deep into meditation. It's possible. I've done it. Many people have. The masters do it all the time, get to, into that state. So what you're doing is you're shifting, right? You're shifting your brain waves. And the way, the simplest way to increase your creativity is to spend more time doing whatever it is that you do when your best ideas come to you. So if it's lying in bed, lie in bed longer. Now, obviously, don't lie in bed longer and then get stressed about the fact that your boss is going to shout at you when you get to work because like, you miss, you're late, set the alarm earlier, but then lie in bed or go to bed earlier and lie in bed or take a longer shower or go for a walk, go for a run. Whatever it is, extend the amount of time that you're doing that. So that's the, the simplest answer to the question. But if you want to be able to turn it on and off more and more, often then actually you, you'd have to go back and uncover some of the things in this pathway that are blocking you. And we have a whole program, six modules, 24 different videos designed to do exactly that, to help you to uncover the things that stop your creativity from flowing. And we identified four, which you can actually map against the four things in this first civilization. So our relationship to money, because many of us say, well, I'll create my masterpiece or I'll do it when I have more money. And the second one is time. People say, well, I'll, I'll do it when I have more time. I'm just brushed off my feet right now. I, I don't have enough time. Or they'll say, I don't have the capacity. I'm, I'm not creative. I'm not a good drawer. And that misses the point. And that's more relationship to power. So power construct, we project it onto something else or someone else, parents, education system, politics. Uh, Jimmy at the age of seven, who said that's a rubbish drawing. And we've forgotten that. And the final one is our relationship to others, intimacy, love. So often what, what we'll say is, I can't do it because somebody will think I'm crazy. My, my wife will kick me out of the house or my husband will disown me or whatever, right? And these four things are the things that ultimately stop us. So we put together a journey, pretty deep journey. It's not for everyone. It's very powerful and it will literally change your life and help you to discover why you're here. What are you here to bring into the world? And that, that's a journey that I put together. Actually, this is the original drawing of it. So I literally mapped it out on this drawing over these six different modules, 24 different videos, game changer. We recorded it last year. Love them. In terms of the people that have been through the program and that you've worked with, without giving away any personal details, anything sensitive, could you give us some examples of how the program has helped people and the outcomes that they've achieved? Yeah, so look at everyone from Suzanne, who wrote a, a book on her life about love. In fact, I think it's about three or four different books that people have written through the Masterpiece Journey. Sue wrote a book. Garth, who's a family doctor in South Africa, wrote a book, Believe It Not About Time. He's in his 70s now. By the way, I'm just looking out the window. There's the most beautiful sunset right now, literally. The, I'm going to take a photo of it for you. And you can put this in at this point. Just so you've got this, right? Because it is stunningly beautiful. I don't normally do that, but what I've noticed, right? We didn't talk about paintings at all. I will come back to, 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 to a few more examples. 
One of the things I haven't mentioned here is the relationship between the inner and outer when I paint. So everything always changes. We, we think, now I remember at school, King Canute, right? The, the king in the Middle Ages, who his courtiers took him down to the sea and said, look, make the waves stop. And he said, I can't do it. The waves always come in and out. That's true. And we are the climate we're trying to change. We're not separate from the system. We're part of it. Whenever I go and paint, I've painted in blizzards and gale force winds and tropical storms. And what I've observed is that the world outside always reflects the world inside. Whatever's going on in, I've painted where you can't even see the mountain. And then I go into a state of stillness and make sure a peak appears. So I paint that peak and then it disappears. And I go into space of stillness and another peak appears. And this happens again and again. And I can tell you story after story about that. Anyway. Right now, there is the most beautiful sunset outside. The world outside reflects the world inside, always. And we don't think we have an influence on it because our mind perceives we are separate from it, but we are an integral part of it and we are influencing it and shaping it all the time, every day. We think we're passive observers of a world beyond our control, but actually we're active creators. We are artists creating our canvas all the time. And the canvas does not stop at the end of the canvas, the whole thing. So anyway, back to, back to some examples. Stuart, he's creating a foundation, an open source foundation in Luxembourg, he's completely transformed his life. He's going to get a big check from the Minister of Economy there. It's going to be a $500 million foundation. Carrie went on to create United Cities, which the vision was 10,000 cities around the world, realizing the sustainable development goals. She actually worked the sustainable development goals backwards. She, she partnered with me came through the entire program. He's now working for the largest foundation in the world, influencing billions of dollars, will eventually influence, influence billions of dollars where that's going. So anywhere from, you know, anywhere in between, right? And your masterpiece, it could be a book, could be a product, could be a, a business, an initiative, a platform, could even be a relationship. In fact, we have somebody in the community right now who quite rightly says their masterpiece is a child. So they're pregnant, she's pregnant and it's going to give birth in May, end of May, two days end of May. And when you think about it, a masterpiece is actually a fusion of these two different forces I've been talking about. What is it? New life, uh, that these two literally come together <laughs> to create new life. And that is what forms from there. It's incredible. From nothing, something emerges from a single cell until it gets to 32 cells in the same cell. So one cell subdivides, that's the morula. And then the spine grows out of that. And then the brain grows and then the organs grow. And then the, the rest of the body grows. It's a miracle, right? You think about human life, 70 trillion cells grows out of that one cell. And that cell is still at the base of your spine. Like throughout your entire line, stem, it's the stem cell, right? So right at the base of your spine, that, that still fell there. Amazing, right? So from nothing, something is created. Exactly the same process. So there are people who I am just in awe of, totally in awe of, who've come through Masterpiece and transformed their worlds and created the most amazing things. For anyone who creates something, is I'm just in awe of the capacity of the human experience to bring something into the world that didn't exist before. And all of us have that capacity, as Seth Godin said in his 2012 book, Lynchpin. 
He said, today all of us are artists. And I, I know that to be true. And the only thing that can stop us is our mind. And our mind is the thing that stores all of those relationships to whatever happened in our lifetime. I've got a big question for you. Your thoughts on AI and the future of where we're going and how will creativity fit into that? I used to think that AI was not conscious and had no role in this. And that was until ChatGPT came out. And then I started to use it consciously, intentionally. And I realized that it could do things that I can't. It could write things more eloquently and beautifully and quicker. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. So to me, AI is, or ChatGPT is just a brilliant assistant. And as long as we brief that assistant properly and correctly, we will get back brilliance. But if we don't, we'll get back rubbish. And so is AI going to take over humankind? Like the reason Elon Musk has created Neuralink is because he he perceives that it might overcome humankind. I don't believe that's true. And it's based on his belief system. And if you look at everything that Elon has done, it's predicated on a simple belief system that consciousness is linked to human existence. So take his, take Tesla, right? Electric cars. So if we don't move to electric cars, then we eradicate ourselves on the planet. Or take his boring company, boring a hole under LA in order to get people from one side of the city to the other. Same idea, right? Or take his whole um, expedition to Mars, right? Create another colony on another planet because this one we're going to destroy. Or take his experiment with X, taking over Twitter and turning it into X, finding a way for us to have discourse, which doesn't have to go through politicians. The guy is basically convinced, I believe, that, in fact, he said it, that if we don't exist, consciousness disappears from the planet. I do not believe that's true. I believe that consciousness is separate because we know that when the, the physical body dies, if you've ever seen a, a dead body, you know there's something missing. What is that? What is that thing that's missing? Well, we give it a label, and as soon as we give it the label, it provokes all of us into our different belief systems. I am not interested in the label. I just call it the artist inside. Create a new label, or the inner game, right? So that we know, because we've seen, it is not there when the body is dead. So where is it? So if the body is dead and it's not there, <laughs> where's it gone? Well, then you have to look at art and poetry and there's a wonderful poem, isn't there? I'm in the room next door. Or what's the room next door? And then we get back, back into other labels. So back to AI. Is AI a threat to humankind? Well, it's not a threat to consciousness. So the question to me is, how conscious are we being in our use of AI? And what are we using it for? I'm old enough to remember when the internet emerged and we, we thought, ah, oh, this is wonderful. And then it was Tim Berners-Lee down the other end of the lake at CERN who said, came up with this vision for the World Wide Web, which is what made the internet explode and said, you know what? Every single house all over the world, every single person is going to have an address. 
And what grew the internet, the World Wide Web? Pornography and gambling. Now, is it the fault of pornography and gambling? No. It's a human vice that always emerges through whichever technology we are using as the cutting-edge technology. So the question to me is, not is AI bad, but who is using AI and how are we using it? Are we consciously using it to tackle the, the symptoms that we see in our daily lives, the stresses and the resistance that we see in our daily lives or we see around the planet or not? And it's not AI's fault that we're the way we are. That's not AI's fault. So you can't project it onto AI and say, oh, AI is the problem. No, the problem is that not enough of us have looked at the things that are stopping us from creating. And it's not even our stuff. It's just that we experience it in this lifetime. As Carl Jung said, it's the collective unconscious. And it's like a, it's like a suit that we dive into when we come into this body. And there we are in this world of suffering, what the Buddhists call samsara. And we're in this world of that. And it feels tricky and difficult and horrible and all the rest. That is what we're here to resolve in ourselves, to heal in ourselves. And the more we do, the more creative we are, and the higher we get up the mountain, and the more amazing our lives are, and blah, blah, blah. Thank you for that. And again, fascinating in terms of your insights on AI, because that is a topic close to many of our hearts. I found a new term the other day, AI anxiety, which is uh, fast becoming a thing, I think, for many of us, thinking about are we going to be replaced by robots? And how is AI going to go in terms of its direction? Before we kicked off, I know you and I had a very brief conversation about the UN, and you've done some work with the UN. And I know you're yeah. very passionate about sustainability. So would you like to share some of what you found as you were working with them? So down in Geneva, right, we have a UN, World Health Organization, a UNICEF, Gavi Alliance, which is all about vaccination. I was heavily involved in that right at the beginning, and we're talking way before COVID. Global Fund, which is the largest fund in the world to address malaria and tuberculosis and TB, and a whole load of other NGOs. And then, of course, there's New York and NGOs all over the world. So I got to work with 20 of these NGOs from about 2000 and I would say, to 2011, something like that. And I really thought that I was having a massive influence on the world. And the Red Cross is there, the International Federation of the Red Cross, which is 191 different societies, Red Cross societies, including the UK Red Cross, the American Red Cross, um, and also the Red Crescent societies in certain countries where a cross is obviously associated with Christianity. And I also got to work with the International Committee of the Red Cross and did work with them. And there are some wonderful people working in those organizations, no question. And they're doing incredible work. But if we allow and we perceive that peace will come about because the Red Cross intervenes in, in Palestine or in Ukraine, uh, we will be waiting a very long time for peace. And the same goes for climate change and anything else that you're interested in. Uh, whether anything to do with equality, uh, education, any of that, right? Look at all of the 19 Sustainable Development Goals. And sadly, my experience was that 
we will not realize them through that system. And the reason is very simple, that if you look at a single country, you're in the UK at the moment, and you know how politics works in the UK because you can't get away from it. And we're in an election cycle this year in the US and we see you know, the politics in the US. So just put those two countries together, right? The politics from those two countries. In fact, just take one country, politics from one country. We can't come to an agreement in one country on the way that country should move forward. So what happens if you put 192 countries in the same room? Absolute chaos. I can just see it now. <laughs> in, in the UK, we, we can read the press and we go, well, the UN hasn't done this. Well, the UN can't do this because it's a membership organization. So for instance, if you take China, right? China had an outbreak of, of a pandemic. When did it declare the, the outbreak? It declared it as the 31st of December, 2019. Now, I got COVID on about the 15th of January, 2020, in a ski resort in Verbier on a lift. And it wasn't supposed to be in Europe then. But if China says to the World Health Organization, it was the 31st of December, 2019, According to the World Health Organization, it was the 31st of December, 2019, right? So it has to go with what the member state says. That's the design of the system. Now, the advantage of the design of the system is that you get stalemate, which means that you don't get, you're unlikely to get the same level of wars we had in 1939 or the same level of wars we had in 1914. You're unlikely to get that. But what it also means is it's hamstrung to actually do anything. So it can't actually implement the things that we know it ought to do because the design of the system is so bureaucratic. For instance, I did a campaign on water. It's called the WASH campaign. It's a global campaign on sanitation water. And I led the campaign and I led it with a guy called Bob Isherwood, who was the former worldwide creative director, executive creative director. So from a creative perspective, he was the guy who took Sarchu to being the number one ad agency in the world. The credit's normally given to Kevin Roberts, the founder of Sarchi, and quite rightly, he was the visionary. But the guy who actually was creating the ideas was Bob Eastwood. And I, I worked with him, and we worked on this campaign, and we worked on the campaign for the Red Cross as well. And at the end of the campaign, we came up with this great campaign, because the problem with sanitation is that in, in European countries, we were able to invest in putting sanitation in place thanks to colonialization. So we were able to extract wealth from the colonies and that gave us a big bank account and we were able to put in the capital investment to put the pipes in place that put good sanitation in place. Now, if you tried to do that in India now, the investment is too great and the, the, the country, the government is not in a position to do it. It's impossible. Same in Kenya, same in many countries around. So what do you need? You need a capital investment. Well, where's the capital investment going to come from? Well, the government could borrow more money, but it's never going to do that because more sanitation is not going to get a vote. So the insight we came up with, which is a relatively well-known insight, is you would need to get an entrepreneurial spirit around sanitation. So what did we do? We came up with a campaign, which was a campaign to trigger entrepreneurship in these countries in order to get investment in sanitation. And there was a direct return. And we worked out the direct return. You can put in place purification plants. You can make money out of purification plants. You can make money out of toilets. You can make money out of turning waste into energy. So there are different ways you can make money out of waste. And we created a whole campaign around this. And we thought it was brilliant. And we presented it. And the client thought it was brilliant. 
And then the client goes, but hold on a moment, there's no brochure here. But like, hold on a moment, this campaign is bigger than a brochure. It's a big idea. And now you take it to the countries and you get them to play. No, but there's no brochure. But the brochure is not going to do that. Yeah, but in the RFP, the request for proposals, it said there needs to be a brochure. Yeah, but the brochure is not going to make a difference in the world. Yeah, but if we don't have the brochure, we can't sign off on you completing the contract and therefore we can't pay you. Yeah, but the brochures, like we've just invested all this time and effort, way more valuable than the money you've paid us. We did it because we want to make an impact, yeah, but we can't pay you. And, and therein, in that story, lies the problem. And they didn't even have, I don't even know whether the campaign ran. I don't even know whether they had the capacity to implement the campaign. So what I realized is that you can create an idea, which is an incredible idea. But if the, I, I originally I thought it was the culture of the organization, the structure of the organization, the design of it. And I still believe that to be partly the case, but it's also the mindset of the individuals. So if you take another organization, which Bill Gates holds up as his best investment ever, I would beg to differ because the culture in the organization is unbelievably toxic. And I've coached people out of that organization who've had breakdowns. And that's one of our vaccination. And it gets $7 billion of funding um, every few years in order to continue to vaccine, uh, vaccinate every single child. I take away the politics of vaccination. One side of them, forget it, right? But if you were to take that as a private sector company and you were to say, look at the investment versus the return on that investment, it's pitiful. It's pitiful. Now he says it's the best investment he's ever made. And I guess the question is, what's the value of a life? But there would be a far more effective way of doing it. And that is to unlock the potential of the countries, which was the original business model. The original business model was to unlock the creativity in the countries. But if you bring in a mindset that is a post-colonial mindset, which is, we know better, then you're not unlocking the potential in the countries. You're actually blocking that potential. So what do you do? You expand the team in Geneva rather than unlocking the un unbelievable potential in the country. So the design of the system is, is the very opposite of what I've been describing here. It is a system which is divide, designed top-down, a system of control, rather than unlocking the creativity or moving to a decentralized system. So the UN sadly will not be able to resolve the challenges we see on the planet. And anyone who, I, I know people in, in various parts of the UN who came to people like Carrie, who I mentioned earlier and said, you need to do this work and you need to do it outside of the system. Because the only way that this is going to happen is outside of the system. And I see initiatives like that today, initiatives that I'm working on that need to be outside of that system. Now, it's not to say that what they're doing is wrong. Just to, I want to reemphasize this. It's to say that they won't solve it on their own. They can set the framework. They can set the parameters. They can say, these are the 19 goals. And those are brilliant. But it will now need us to step up as individuals and to find what role we can play. And just to be clear, it doesn't mean that you need to go off and create some NGO to do this. Because for me, the biggest mistake we're making is that we're thinking that tackling the climate is, is a doing thing. We have to do something. We have to pull CO2 out of the atmosphere. We have to plant a tree. We have to recycle plastics. We have to take our rubbish and separate it. All of these things are good. I'm not saying they're bad. But if we do those things and we are not, and we are still in a state of separation, 
we're still not operating from here rather than here. Forget it. There was a very famous Indian who said, be the change you want to see in the world. He didn't say act on the change. He didn't say talk about the change. He didn't say convince others to change. He said, be the change. Be the change you want to see in the world. That means that we have to realign with who are we. We have to connect to our true nature. And if we connect to that, which I call our purpose, and we act from there, using the Chinese principle of Wu Wei, which is principle of effortless action, everything flows. We are in a state of flow. And therefore, we don't have to worry about how many trees we've planted or how much CO2 we're putting out of the atmosphere or how much we're upsetting a flight because we're acting from a different state. And that really, to me, is what all of this pressure that we're feeling around us is all about. It's actually, there's a reason there's more people on the planet than ever. The reason is that there's more chance of mutation. Going back to what I said about 40,000 years ago, what if we, what if our genes shifted? What if we upgraded? What if AI was not about technology, but it was about us actually creating a different kind of human, but a human that re returned to its true nature, that was more in harmony with true nature? What if that's what all the pressure was about? And all it was forcing us to do was to do what I said earlier, whatever we resist persists and grows. So rather than resist it, embrace it, which is what I experienced when I was painting in the wind. When I stop resisting the wind, it stopped resisting me and it starts flowing through me and creating something different on the canvas. I am in harmony with it. There was an incident in Provence where I was painting in front of this field of lavender and I painted it one day. It was the Mistral, three hours, the canvas was all over the place. I had no control because the canvas was hitting the brush constantly and I abandoned it. And I got so angry and so frustrated with the wind, I started shouting at it. I gave up. I went home, went back to the B&B. following day, I got up, painted a different painting, went to lunch, got in my car to come home, and it said there was a four-hour delay on the Autoroute de Soleil coming back to Geneva. So instead, I put in a deviation. The deviation took me back where I painted the previous day. I thought, oh, this is interesting. Let me get out. Let me go and... Let me go and set up the canvas again and see if I feel like painting, set up the canvas again. And this time I stopped resisting the wind. I grabbed a, rather than try and paint it with a brush, I grabbed a, one of those ocean sponges, loaded up the palette, grabbed the side of the canvas and felt the wind almost like it was flowing through me. The canvas was totally different. And literally I transformed the painting in 10 minutes. That to me is about being aligned with our true nature. And that's not just me, you can do it. Everyone can do it. Doesn't mean you need to be painted a blizzard. It just means that you need to stop resisting whatever is outside of you, whatever symptoms you see and work out what is the root cause of that. And the root cause, the answer isn't out there, it's inside, always. And the UN isn't doing that, sadly. Oh, that's disappointing to hear. And I can absolutely appreciate when you have so many diverse opinions in an organization and just so everyone's pulling in different directions and then you add the element of politics in there as well, I'm sure it becomes really challenging. But oh, thank you so much for sharing those insights, Alexander, really fascinating. We're almost out of time, but I'd love to hear from you 
on how people can get in touch with you if they're interested to know more about the great work that you're doing. Yeah, so the easiest way to get in touch is to go to themasterpiece.agency, themasterpiece.agency or one word.agency. And there you will find links to some of the journeys that we take people on. You'll also find the purpose sessions that we run. So we run purpose sessions every couple of weeks. So if you want to really unlock and understand who you are and why you're here, uh, we run those sessions. They're complimentary. You'll also find the Masterpiece Pathway if you feel called to join that. You'll find a link to that and a little bit more information about that. And you'll also, if you want to jump onto a call and explore together, you will find also a button to contact me and jump onto a call for 15, 20 minutes and, and just explore, you know, what you need, what you need to get to the next level in your life, what you need to climb your mountain. Oh, fantastic. So Alexander, I just want to thank you so much for the amazing insights you've given today. And I've just been listening and pondering over many of the points. And this is another episode where I'm going to thoroughly enjoy editing because I always find the editing process is when I'm in my deeper flow and I'm actually really taking in a lot of the points. So yeah, really looking forward to that. So thank you so much. Thank you, Paddy, and enjoy the editing. It's the end of another episode. Thank you so much for listening. Please do connect with me via LinkedIn and drop me a message and let me know your favorite takeaways from the episode. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the Superpower School newsletter so that you can be notified of all future episodes. Simply visit the website www.superpowers.school. Thank you once again.